This episode includes discussion of suicide and graphic violence and is intended for adult consumption only. Please keep this in mind when deciding if, how, and when you'll listen. For resources on these topics, visit spotify.com resources. Of all the core values of the U.S. military, loyalty is prized above all else. But in 2010, U.S. soldier Chelsea Manning chose to betray that loyalty by leaking thousands of top-secret documents. Documents that showed evidence of torture, secret spy missions, and hushed-up deaths. It was a decision that put her life in danger, and according to some, changed the course of history. Welcome to Whistleblowers, a Spotify original from Parcast. In this series, we explore the biggest lies in history through the eyes of the whistleblowers who risked everything to expose them. Chelsea Manning's story is a complex one, full of twists and turns and decisions that can seem bewildering. To try and understand the choices that Chelsea made back in 2010, we need to understand what the world around her was like at that time. So we're going to start by taking a brief look at the backdrop to her story, a backdrop which is dominated by the Iraq War. In the early 2000s, tension between Iraq and the U.S. was building. Iraq's president, Saddam Hussein, had established an increasingly violent dictatorship. And to combat this, a U.S.-led coalition formed in March 2003. They planned to invade Iraq and end what they called Saddam's reign of terror. There were other reasons for the invasion, too. U.S. President George Bush and U.K. Prime Minister Tony Blair believed that Saddam was concealing weapons of mass destruction and that he had ties with al-Qaeda, the group responsible for 9-11. And so, on March 20, 2003, Troops from the U.S., the U.K., Australia, and Poland invaded Iraq. They began a devastating bombing campaign that collapsed Saddam's government. And in December of that year, Saddam himself was captured. Afterwards, the troops stayed in Iraq to search for the elusive weapons of mass destruction although their progress was limited by groups of insurgents that had formed after Saddam's capture. As the war raged on, Bush relayed messages of victory and progress to his people. But polls showed that only just over half of Americans supported the war. Leaders in France, Germany, and Russia spoke out against it, too. And there was worse to come. In April 2004, photos emerged of U.S. soldiers abusing Iraqis at Abu Ghraib prison. A few months later, U.N. Secretary General Kofi Annan declared that the invasion had been illegal. And in October 2004, it was reported that Iraq hadn't owned any weapons of mass destruction after all. There was no evidence of ties between Saddam and al-Qaeda either. As this news spread, the U.S. public's faith in the war began to nosedive. And yet the troops remained in Iraq, ostensibly to help the people rebuild their nation. 
Over the next two years, troops and insurgent groups exchanged a series of increasingly devastating attacks. It is reported that in the first three to five years of the war, between 150,000 and 1 million Iraqi people died. At this point, withdrawing the troops and leaving Iraq in a stable state seemed impossible. And so, in January 2007, nearly four years after the invasion, President Bush sent more troops and money to Iraq to help with the effort. And over the next two years, his investment seemed to pay off. In December 2008, the U.S. Department of Defense announced that the situation in Iraq was much improved. The murder rate in the country was back to pre-war levels, and reports of violence had dropped 80% in two years. The public started to believe that overall, the mission might have been a real success. And the new U.S. President, Barack Obama, began to make plans to withdraw the troops, although everyone knew that would take time. It was a few months after this announcement, in October 2009, that 21-year-old Chelsea Manning joined her fellow troops on an army base just outside the capital city of Baghdad. It was there that she discovered that things in Iraq weren't going as smoothly as she'd been led to believe. Chelsea Manning wasn't your typical soldier. She had a unique perspective on life one that was shaped in part by a turbulent childhood. Chelsea was born Bradley Manning in Oklahoma City in 1987. She'd always felt like she didn't belong, even within her own family. Chelsea claims that both of her parents were alcoholics and that they were seen as a troubled family. The mother of one classmate remembers that whenever the school went on field trips, she would give her son extra money to make sure the Manning children got something to eat. Chelsea always knew, deep down, that she was a girl, but was afraid to tell people. She felt isolated throughout her school years and found it hard to make friends, something which became even more difficult when she and her mother moved to West Wales in the UK after her parents' divorce. Chelsea claims she was bullied mercilessly there for being different. She found solace in computers and excelled in programming, So when she graduated high school, Chelsea returned to the U.S. to live with her father and found a job as a software developer, but was let go after just four months. Over the next couple of years, Chelsea, who was still living as Bradley, moved from one low-paid job to the next and was often unemployed. Her father became frustrated at her lack of direction, and when Chelsea reached 19, he encouraged her to join the Army. At first, Chelsea wasn't keen on the idea. She was afraid of a repeat of her school years, but she also knew that if she signed up, she could get a free college education one day, which would give her more opportunities when her service was over. And deep down, Chelsea hoped that being in such a masculine environment would resolve her gender dysphoria. Eventually, she agreed and enlisted into the Army in September 2007. As she'd feared, the bullying and harassment began immediately. At five foot two, she was a lot smaller than the other men, and she claims that they would bully her because she was gay. But worst of all for Chelsea was the realization that joining the army hadn't changed the fact she was supposed to be a woman. 
By the time she arrived in Baghdad in October 2009, 21-year-old Chelsea had developed anxiety and depression. In an attempt to block out her distress, she threw herself into her work. Because of her interest in computers, she'd chosen to train as an intelligence analyst. Her job involved spending 14 to 15 hours a day in front of a computer in a hot, dark, tightly packed room. There, she sorted through databases of classified footage, images, and correspondence. It was her responsibility to check the accuracy of any reports that came in, search for tactical patterns that could help the U.S. military, and identify potential threats to their troops. The hours were tough, but she didn't expect to be stationed there very long. She'd heard that the situation in Iraq was calming down. And anyway, it was a relief to block out her troubling thoughts and focus on the cold, hard facts in front of her. Soon, though... Chelsea realized that these cold, hard facts were telling an unexpected story. The consensus back home in the U.S. was that things were generally improving in Iraq. But the documents Chelsea was seeing suggested that the war was not going as well as the U.S. government wanted its people to believe. And it looked like the lasting effect of the war would be far more devastating than anyone was letting on. Among the documents was one that showed there had been approximately 15,000 more civilian deaths than had been reported, some at the hands of U.S. soldiers. This increased the previous estimate from 50,000 to as many as 66,000. Other intel outlined hundreds of allegations of abuse, torture, rape, and murder at the hands of the Iraqi police force, a force that the coalition had established and trained. Worse still, these allegations had not been investigated by U.S. leaders. She also saw evidence of the detention, abuse, and torture of Iraqi prisoners that seemed to Chelsea unnecessary and cruel. Then there was the explosive political information. Reports that showed that in the lead-up to the 2003 Iraq invasion, the U.S. and U.K. had spied on U.N. Secretary General Kofi Annan. Other documents included sensitive discussions between Saudi Arabian leaders and the United States, in which Saudi leaders asked the U.S. to attack its long-held enemy, Iran. And there was correspondence in which the president of Yemen encouraged the U.S. to organize airstrikes against al-Qaeda within Yemen itself. This is despite publicly denying that the U.S. had any role in the attacks, for fear of angering his critics. Then there was information about the war in Afghanistan, where fellow American troops were fighting the Taliban, Reports showed there was a top-secret U.S. military unit whose sole job was to kill or capture high-up terrorists. And this unit had made mistakes that resulted in the deaths of civilians and, in some cases, children. As she consumed all of this top-secret information, Chelsea realized just how far the average American's understanding of the wars was from reality. Things in Iraq and Afghanistan were far from all right, and she was just supposed to ignore it and get on with her job. She felt hopeless, 
and she had no friends on the base she could talk to. The only place she found any comfort was in online forums. Every morning, after a long night shift, she would go to her cramped, shared bedroom and connect with other lonely souls around the world. But even there, Chelsea couldn't say everything she wanted to. The footage, images, and correspondence she had seen were highly classified, and if she told anyone about it, she knew she could get into serious trouble. And so she tried to forget about the things she had learned, the gruesome images she'd seen, and the deaths she had calculated, and get on with her job. Until one day, Chelsea came across a video that proved to be the final straw. The footage had been recorded in Baghdad in July 2007 and showed U.S. helicopter pilots begging their chief to let them fire on a group of suspected insurgents gathered below. When they were given the go-ahead, they laughed as they gunned the men down. A van appeared to help the wounded, and the pilots pelted that with bullets, too. It was sickening to watch. After the attack, two of the 12 dead Iraqis were identified as Reuters journalists, and two severely injured children were found inside the van, next to the dead driver, their father. When the video came to an end, the pilot's laughter continued to echo around Chelsea's head. It was then that she made a huge decision. On the 5th of January, 2010, three months after her arrival in Iraq, Chelsea went to her work computer with a memory stick and a CD labeled Lady Gaga. She put on her headphones and loaded the CD into the computer. But instead of listening to music, she filled the blank disc with evidence of all the things that had appalled her over the last three months, along with anything else that she could find. All in all, she downloaded more than 400,000 of the most explosive files that have ever come out of the U.S. military. At the end of her shift, she calmly took them back to her room. Just a few days later, Chelsea traveled home to the U.S. on leave, with the files hidden in her luggage. There, she reached out to The Washington Post and The New York Times— all the while terrified she'd be found out. But the news outlets didn't seem to take her story seriously, and nothing came of it. It was then that she remembered WikiLeaks, a website founded by editor and activist Julian Assange. The site published anonymous tips and classified information. She decided that she would send the files and leave them to break the news to the public. And so, on February 3rd, 2010, Chelsea Manning walked into a Barnes & Noble bookstore in Maryland, used the Wi-Fi to log onto anonymous open-source software, and uploaded the files to WikiLeaks. A week later, she was back at work as normal in Iraq. Over the next few weeks, the files she'd sent started popping up online. Some of them barely made a ripple, but others were picked up by the mainstream press and spread like wildfire. 
On April 5th, 2010, WikiLeaks released the Baghdad airstrike video. They titled it Collateral Murder and did not reveal Chelsea's identity. When the public saw it and heard the soldiers laughing as they shot at the Reuters correspondence, they were appalled. Many people on online forums praised Julian Assange's heroism for bringing to light what they saw as the corruption of the U.S. government and military. While Chelsea was pleased that the public were taking notice, she was also more worried than ever that the footage would be traced back to her. She was a soldier and had agreed to follow the rules of the military. If the army found out, she could be court-martialed and sent to prison for the rest of her life. But weeks passed, and her identity remained unknown. Which makes it all the more strange that on the 21st of May, 2010, Chelsea contacted a complete stranger and confessed to her crime. Chelsea's chosen confidant was 29-year-old Adrian Lamo. Ten years earlier, in the late 90s, Adrian had started hacking into corporate computer systems, ostensibly to work out if their security was strong enough to protect their users. If he found weak points, he'd fix them for the company free of charge, and was often praised for his work. While his actions mostly walked the line between benevolent and illegal, in February 2002, Adrian hit the headlines when he hacked into the New York Times systems and tampered with some of their databases. The Times filed a complaint against him, and Adrian was eventually sentenced to two years probation for computer crimes. For reasons known best to herself, Chelsea felt this made Adrian the best person to confide in. And on the 21st of May, 2010, Chelsea logged on to an encrypted messaging channel, reached out to him, and told him she was a U.S. Army intelligence analyst who had downloaded hundreds of thousands of extremely sensitive files and sent them to WikiLeaks. It's hard to understand why Chelsea confessed. If she'd kept quiet, her crimes might never have been discovered. Perhaps she was sick of keeping secrets and wanted to be found out. Perhaps she wanted to impress this well-known hacker with her skills and courage. Or perhaps she simply trusted him. Either way, Chelsea had taken a huge risk in telling Adrian her secrets. After their chat, he made two phone calls. One to a friend of his called Tim Webster, who was a former Army intelligence officer, and another, a short time later, to a business partner. He told them he was worried that the classified documents could get into enemy hands, that secret locations could be attacked, and undercover U.S. agents and informants could be in danger. The sooner the government knew the whole story, the better they could minimize the damage. Following these calls, both Tim Webster and Adrian's business partner contacted the authorities. Six days later, in the early hours of May 27, 2010, a terrified Chelsea Manning was arrested at her army base just outside Baghdad. From there, Chelsea was transferred to a makeshift military jail at Camp Arifjan in Kuwait, 
and charged with a list of serious offenses, including circumventing security mechanisms and, most serious of all, aiding the enemy, a charge which can carry the death sentence. In Kuwait, Chelsea was kept in solitary confinement in her cramped cell. Her meals were delivered through a slot in the door, although she ate very little, and she wasn't allowed to sleep between the hours of 5 a.m. and 8 p.m. If she tried to, she was shouted at and made to sit or stand up. Chelsea was kept there for two months, and in that short time, her mental health deteriorated so severely that one day, guards discovered she had fashioned her bed sheets into a noose. The sheets were taken away, and guards tightened their watch over her. In late July 2010, Chelsea was finally moved back to the States, to the Marine Corps base in Quantico, Virginia. But conditions there weren't much better than in Kuwait. Chelsea was placed on POI, or Prevention of Injury Status. In her 6 by 12 foot cell, with no window, guards looked in on her every five minutes. The 22-year-old had no access to sheets and no pillow except for the one built into her mattress. And her blanket was a special one that couldn't be shredded. She was locked in her cell, alone, for 23 hours a day. But Chelsea found the lack of privacy the hardest to bear. Guards checked on her constantly, and she was forced to sleep either naked or wearing just boxer shorts. In the mornings, she had to stand up in front of the guards for roll call, still half-naked. While this might seem insignificant for some, Chelsea's complicated relationship with her body and gender made this near torture. But there were some tiny rays of hope. While in prison in Quantico, she discovered that she had supporters and that she was all over the international news. While some people labeled her a traitor, others were calling Chelsea brave. It was something small that she felt she could hold on to over the many slow, hellish months of waiting. In early December 2011, Chelsea had been in Quantico Prison for 16 months when she was finally flown to Maryland for the first of many trial hearings. There, the world watched as Chelsea was charged with 34 counts under the United States Code, including the Espionage Act and the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. The most terrifying charge was read last— aiding the enemy. Each charge carried a hefty sentence. What followed was 18 more long months of court hearings in which Chelsea's alleged wrongdoings were forensically investigated in court. It was there that she saw Adrian Lamo, the man who she now knew had revealed her secrets to the world. He testified against her, but Chelsea found that she had no ill feelings towards Adrian. She felt more angry towards the U.S. government for using him. Fourteen months into the hearings, in February 2013, Chelsea entered a plea of guilty to the leaking of military information, but a plea of not guilty to the more serious charge of aiding the enemy. She was then asked to explain the reasons behind her actions. At this point, Chelsea and her lawyers chose to reveal the fact that she self-identified as a woman. 
It was a terrifying move for Chelsea. The courtroom was told that months before leaking the documents, Chelsea had reached out to her supervisor in Iraq with what she called her problem, emailing him a photograph of herself wearing lipstick and a blonde wig. Her lawyers claimed that the supervisor had not taken the appropriate steps to support her after she contacted him. They posited that this had increased Chelsea's stress levels and may have contributed to her feelings of isolation and subsequently her decision to leak the files. This was a bold move on the part of Chelsea's lawyers. By making this argument, they were in some ways agreeing that Chelsea's actions had not been the well-considered and sensible actions of a dedicated whistleblower. This revelation painted Chelsea as someone who wasn't mentally stable. And the lawyers were claiming that this was, in part, the fault of the U.S. military. Reactions to this news were mixed. Military psychologist Captain Michael Worsley had treated Chelsea before her arrest. He testified in court that she had been isolated in the Army and had to deal with gender identity issues alone in a hyper-masculine environment. But there were also rumors that Chelsea's team may have fabricated her gender revelation to ensure a more lenient sentence. David Moulton, a Navy psychiatrist who assessed Chelsea after her arrest, claimed that leaking the material was a way to act out grandiose ideation. He suggested that Chelsea exhibited narcissistic traits and showed signs of both fetal alcohol syndrome and Asperger syndrome. The prosecution highlighted the fact that Chelsea had released classified information that could theoretically have damaged U.S. national security. Luckily for Chelsea, an investigation by the U.S. Defense Department in June 2011 had shown that it hadn't. But that didn't mean that no one had been put in danger by Chelsea's actions. The investigation had found that the leak had included identifying information about civilians who had supported the war effort. Local translators, interpreters, and intelligence assets were named and were in danger of being targeted by insurgents. On July 30th, 2013, more than three years after Chelsea's arrest and one and a half years since the trial started, the judge read out the verdict to a hushed courtroom. Relief washed over Chelsea Manning when she was cleared of the most serious charge on her bill, that of aiding the enemy, which meant the death penalty was completely off the table. But the relief didn't last long. Chelsea Manning was found guilty of 17 of the 22 charges, including five counts of espionage and theft. Sentencing would begin the next day. In the meantime, Chelsea was given the opportunity to apologize. She held back tears as she told the courtroom, I am sorry that my actions hurt people. I'm sorry that they hurt the United States. I am sorry for the unintended consequences of my actions. When I made these decisions, I believed I was going to help people, not hurt people. At the time of my decisions, I was dealing with a lot of issues. Chelsea didn't know if her words would have any effect on her sentence. Solitary confinement had been soul-destroying, but now she was facing up to 90 years in jail living with men who she felt sure would hate her for being a trans woman. 
Her lawyers had begged the judge to give her no more than 25 years. They argued that her mental and physical health couldn't take it. But on August 21st, 2013, a distraught Chelsea Manning was sentenced to 35 years in prison. Within hours of her sentence being confirmed, Chelsea Manning was taken to the United States Disciplinary Barracks at Fort Leavenworth in Kansas. The one small triumph was that the judge had agreed to reduce her sentence by 112 days because she had already spent so much time in jail in Kuwait and at Quantico. In fact, the judge ruled that she had experienced inhumane conditions there. Nevertheless, Chelsea would be imprisoned until 2045. As the news of her sentence spread around the world, some people were elated that justice had been done, while others felt that the sentencing was harsh and that Chelsea had simply done what she thought was right. On the 22nd of August, 2013, the day after she was sentenced, Chelsea sent a statement to the U.S. Today Show telling the public that she would like to be known as Chelsea Manning and referred to using female pronouns. She also said that she wanted to start hormone therapy as soon as possible while in Fort Leavenworth Prison. When the officials at the prison were asked about her request, they stated that they would not provide hormone therapy to Chelsea, but confirmed that she would receive psychiatric support. And so, with hormone therapy and surgery off the table, and 35 uncomfortable years stretching in front of her, Chelsea started her sentence. Most mornings, at 4.30 a.m., before the first roll call, Chelsea would wake up and get ready for the day in her 80-square-foot cell. Known only as inmate 89289, Chelsea would apply makeup and put on female undergarments underneath her brown uniform. She had minimal contact with people who did not know her before her incarceration. Chelsea found that keeping herself busy in prison was the easiest way to stay under the radar of other inmates. Her days at the male military prison were bleak. With no privacy and no real friends, Chelsea spent her time building picture frames and furniture in the prison woodshop. In the evenings, she would read through reams of letters from supporters, praising her as a whistleblower and exposer of what they saw as a corrupt and murderous military. They told her they were behind her no matter what. They would find a way to get her out soon. And her lawyers were working on that, too. Her team had asked the president at the time, Barack Obama, for a reduction in her sentence. The petition had included a request from Amnesty International, which said that Chelsea's leaks had exposed violations of human rights and suggested that, as a whistleblower, she should be protected. But the request was denied. Chelsea's team vowed they would keep trying. They knew that many of President Obama's supporters were sympathetic to Chelsea. Perhaps one day he would reconsider. In the meantime, there was one small victory. 18 months into her stay at Fort Leavenworth, on February 5, 2015, it was agreed that she would be allowed to start hormone therapy after all. 
But while this was a positive step, Chelsea's mental health continued to deteriorate. Despite starting the transitioning process, she would have to stay at the men's prison and shower in the communal bathroom. By July 2016, nearly three years after Chelsea had arrived at Fort Leavenworth, her mood had dipped lower than ever, and one night she tried to take her own life. She was found unresponsive but alive in her cell. Afterwards, she faced disciplinary measures for resisting the guard who entered her cell, threatening an orderly, and possessing a prohibited book about hacking. As punishment, she was put into solitary confinement. While there, she attempted to take her life again. Chelsea had hit rock bottom. But there was one last sliver of hope. There is a long-running tradition of U.S. presidents granting pardons in their last days of office. President Obama was coming to the end of his term. If Chelsea's team could convince him to reconsider her case, she might just have a chance at early freedom. In November 2016, Chelsea made a formal petition to President Obama to reduce her 35-year sentence to the six years she had already served. If he agreed, she would walk free immediately. By December 2016, the petition had more than 100,000 signatures, which meant the White House had to give an official response. Lawyers from all over the world were saying that the pardon was unlikely to happen. Chelsea's request did not fit into the usual criteria, and time was not on her side. President Obama had very few weeks left in office. Chelsea waited on pins and needles. She knew this might be her last chance. On January 17, 2017, Chelsea was called into the officers' quarters at Leavenworth. There was news from the White House. President Obama had refused to give Chelsea a full pardon, but he agreed to commute all but a few months of her remaining sentence, which meant she would be released in four months' time. In his statement, the president wrote that Chelsea's original 35-year sentence was very disproportionate relative to what other data leakers had received. The promise of freedom kept Chelsea going in the final few weeks of her sentence, and at 2 a.m. on May 18, 2017, she walked out of Fort Leavenworth. Chelsea spent her first few days of freedom living the way she had always wanted to. She shopped for new clothes, got her hair cut, and felt a weight lift off her shoulders. On Good Morning America, in her first interview following her release, Chelsea said that she accepted responsibility for her actions and thanked former President Obama for giving her another chance. She was hopeful for the future, but adjusting to normal life wasn't easy. Her years in prison had left her with lasting trauma, and she was haunted by the past. In March 2018, Chelsea was shocked to hear that Adrian Lamo, the hacker who had told the authorities about her confession, had died. 
In the eight years since their first conversation, Adrian had been berated by other hackers for revealing Chelsea's identity, and he'd become increasingly depressed. There was no clear cause of his death, but some people wondered whether the online hate and death threats finally took their toll. And there was more bad news to come. In March 2019, to the frustration and dismay of her friends and supporters, Chelsea found herself in jail once again. She'd been subpoenaed to testify in front of a grand jury in the trial of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, who was being tried for allegedly conspiring with Manning to break into military computers. Chelsea felt she had given the authorities all the information she had on the subject and did not want to answer questions about Julian's involvement. She stubbornly refused to testify, was held in contempt of court, and jailed, this time in a female detention center. Chelsea remained in prison for most of the next 12 months, as she continued to refuse to comply with the subpoena. There, her mental state declined once again, and on the 11th of March, 2020, she tried to take her own life. The following day, the authorities announced that Chelsea's testimony was no longer needed in Julian Assange's case, and she was released. Chelsea continues to live a divisive life. She is often in the press and doesn't shy away from controversial statements. These days, she spends most of her time making public appearances and giving talks, although she has also taken on some cybersecurity work. While her life continues to be something of a roller coaster, Chelsea has achieved one of her most important dreams. On October 20th, 2018, she revealed she'd had gender reassignment surgery. Her Instagram account is now full of pictures of Chelsea happily posing with friends, wearing lipstick, dresses, and bikinis, and looking like she is finally comfortable in her own skin. Her decision to leak classified documents continues to divide opinion. Thanks for listening. You can find all episodes of Whistleblowers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode about the world's biggest lies and the people who expose them. For more information on Chelsea Manning, amongst the many sources we used, we found ABC News' June 2017 interview with Chelsea extremely helpful to our research. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original for ParCast, produced in partnership with Stable. Executive produced by Drew Cole, Max Cutler, Becky Jacobs, and David McGuire. Developed for podcast by Julian Boireau. Written by Grace Hetherington. Produced by Alice Homewood. Mixed, mastered, and sound designed by Rowan Bishop for Stable. And hosted by me, Pat Rodriguez. <laughs>